This is episode number 13, The Recovery, with Pamela Caranova. Welcome. My name is Oleg Lohid, and this is the Overcoming Odds Podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your fullest potential. She couldn't handle it. At 12 years old, she became addicted to drugs and alcohol. Later on, her stepbrother sexually abused her. Her comfort zone quickly turned into a nightmare. Hopeless, not knowing who to ask for help, she turned to the person that knew her best, herself. The recovery process began. Without further ado, please welcome Pamela Caranova. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you don't mind, I would like to start off by you sharing a little bit about your experience and your upbringing um, the type of relationship you have had with your adoptive parents. I was able to read a good portion of your story, but for those who don't know much about it, if you could share some of those details, that would be great. Yeah, absolutely. I don't mind at all. Um, I grew up in a single-parent household. Um, I, my adoptive parents um, got married. Uh, they adopted two children. Um, and I have a sister that was adopted from a separate family and they ended up divorcing when I was a year old. So, um, I ended up staying with my adopted mom. My sister stayed with my adopted mom and my adopted father ended up moving about an hour away and he ended up remarrying and, um, raising another family of his own. So, um, we saw him every other weekend and for holidays and stuff like that. And, um, the reason that they ended up getting divorced is because, my adopted mom was very mentally unstable. She was uh, suicidal and suffered from manic depressive episodes. And um, there was all kinds of stuff that went on in the house while he was married to her, but he couldn't take it. Um, and he left and left us with her. <laughs> so um, he had at one point over the years, I've asked him, why did he leave us with her? And he said that I should have never even been adopted because she couldn't take care of the first baby. And so that kind of lets you know, uh, what the situation was probably like with me staying there and growing up in that household. And um, it really, ever since I've gotten older, I've kind of looked at it in a different view of, you know, how could he leave us there with her <laughs> mm -hmm. when he left and went and remarried and had his own family on the side. And um, I've forgiven everybody for all of that. But um, the, ho the house was, you know, very chaotic. I did everything in my power to get out. Um, I was running away at a really young age. Um, I had always had this hope that my birth mother was going to come and find me. Like this was all just a big mistake. Um, like who could really give their child away and mean it. And I literally, you know, from the minute I found out I was adopted at about five years old, um, started just obsessing about her. Who was she? Where was she? And, you know, like a lot of adoptees, just fantasies, you know, mm -hmm. plague your mind about um, what she might look like or where she's at. And I knew that, the best chance I had at ever finding her was being outside and I was never going to find her inside. <laughs> hmm. And so I was always outside. I was like this 
free-spirited child roaming around <laughs> looking for her everywhere I went. I mean, and, I mean, and 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 I literally would like lay out in the grass and look up at the sky. I wrote a, a story in my blog one time about um, the sky and I because all the way back to my very young childhood, five years old and up, I remember laying in the sky and looking up at the sky and just reaching up and touching the sky like a cloud or I would touch the, the stars or I would touch whatever and I would pretend like she was touching me back because she was under the same sky I was and I talk about the sky being like my baby blanket growing up because it was the only time I ever felt like I was close to my birth mother and so anytime that I could be outside under the sky <laughs> I felt close to her and I know that sounds really crazy but it's like literally I have this attachment to the sky even as an adult now just because it was the only soothing thing I had as a child. But anyway, um, that was the childhood. And I guess as I went into my preteen years, um, the fantasy I had of her coming to rescue me and get me, um, obviously, you know, I was disappointed that it never happened. And the truth is she never came. And so I became really defiant um, with all of the things going on in the house with my adopted mom trying to commit suicide in front of us and um, all kinds of different things. I became very defiant and um, I was the mad, angry adoptee and I just was out of the house um, getting in trouble everywhere. I was very, very defiant. I discovered drugs and alcohol at 12 years old and um, from that moment forward, it was like I was just a ripping tornado, just mm -hmm. a tornado, um, destroying everything in my path but most mostly destroying myself. Um, it was just a spiral of out of control behavior that I had of um, all kinds of activities that I'm not proud of, but I was just mad. I was angry. I was hurt. And I know now that the root of all of those issues is abandonment from my birth mother. I know I've been in recovery now for five years and that's a whole nother story, but um, now I know why I was acting out as a teenager. I was very angry and hurt from my whole adoption situation and um, I, you know, drugs and alcohol took over my life from 12 years old to, um, I think I was in, in drug and alcohol treatment at 15. Mm. Um, I was in and out of detention, uh, and juvenile lockup and, um, stayed in a group home for a while, which I found all of these places, kid you not to be places of comfort for me because there was nothing crazy going on there. Like there was in the home that I had lived in. Mm -hmm. Um, I would go visit my adopted dad every other weekend and was sexually abused by a stepbrother, um, pretty much most of my childhood there. Um, and so that wasn't a place of comfort. There was no place of comfort for me whatsoever, except for being outside in nature and roaming around under the, under the sky. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah. as I got older and went through all of these, um, uh, episodes of acting out and everything, um, I ended up having my first child and that really is something that shifted everything in me because I felt like for once in my life I had a reason to live um, mm -hmm. and a, re a reason to go on. So that's kind of the beginning up until um, I was 21 when I had my first daughter. Do you know why you weren't told the fact that you were adopted or much about your birth parents from your adoptive parents? Uh, well, they lied to me, basically. I mean, my, I, there was, I mean, I was one of the adoptees, uh, they say, well, I describe it to people as, you know, on a scale of one to 10, some of every adoptee is different. We all have different feelings about this. 
But on a scale of one to 10, if you're a one not really affected by your adoption and you're a 10, like it really impacts you. I'm like literally 15 million. Like it always, it always bothered me. Like, who is this woman? And so I would constantly ask my adoptive mom, when am I going to get to find her? Even a little girl, I was asking this question and it never stopped. The last time I asked her was when I was 21 years old. And she basically let me know that she knew who she was the whole time. And she had lied to me my whole life, said that when we get enough money for an attorney, we'll get the sealed records opened, but we don't have enough money for an attorney right now. And I mean, we didn't even have a car growing up. You know, Hmm. the better life promised is not always better. It's just different. So we were on Mm -hmm. food stamps, welfare, no car, divorced parents, sexual abuse, and uh, manic depressive, suicidal, adopted parent um, is not a better life. You know, I know we all get um, a different you know, a different scenario. Everybody has one, but, but anyway, she basically lied to me my whole life and, and let me know that when the paperwork was going to be, um, signed for me to be adopted, the doctor gave them the wrong paperwork. And so they saw my birth mother's name Mm. and they hang, they hung on to it. If, if that didn't happen, I was, I mean, I'm adopted from a closed adoption in Iowa. It's still closed. And, um, I would have never found my biological family if it wasn't for that happening. But, um, you know, at that moment when I was 21, it was after I had my first daughter and I kept on asking, like, I really want to find my birth family. <laughs> you know, like, this is not going to go away for me. And I had no leads on what to do um, to find her. As she said, well, I have something to tell you. And that's how that all came about. But um, I, get, I got angry. I got really, really angry at her for lying to me my whole life. And then the other part of me was filled with such mixed emotions about now I'm actually going to finally be able to find her. Mm-hmm. So... Um, you, bring, yeah, you, you bring up a very good point about finding your roots. I know that that's um, a challenge, but also a reward for a lot of people. I, you know, I was fortunate enough that I guess I was adopted at the age of 12. So I, I had a good understanding of who uh, my family was and I was able to find ways to get in touch with them, you know, whether it was through Skype or just uh, picking up the phone and calling uh, Russia sometimes, which wasn't the um, least expensive route to go, <laughs> but I learned it. I learned all those ways to deal with it. So, my question to you is: Have you been able to reconnect with your birth family? And the second part is: How important is it for other adoptees to reconnect with their roots? Um, the first question is: Yes, I have reconnected with my birth family. Um, I found my birth mother first and, um, I got to meet her one time and then she shut the door. She slammed the door and never opened it again. Um, and she's actually passed away now. So, um, that was a really traumatic experience for me to, and I, I, that, that again comes into alcohol, uh, really, numbing every other reality of adoption for me. I talk a lot about recovery because I'm in recovery and um, a lot of adoptees have substance abuse issues with drugs and alcohol and stuff like that. And uh, I can tell you that didn't do me any favors um, in processing pain at all, you know? And so me finding my birth mother and meeting her, she really didn't even want to meet me. Um, I have a sister um, through my birth mother that set the meeting up and, um, you know, like I said, we got to meet one time and, um, I was under the assumption that our one time meeting was going to be the beginning of a relationship. Mm -hmm. And we sat down at her table and she asked me how my life was. And, 
I told her the truth. I said, I've never bonded with my adopted mom. I have lived in this house and not bonded with these people. I've had a really hard time with this thing. Like literally all I wanted to say to her was all I want is you. You're the only thing that I want. (laughs) But I didn't say that part because I didn't want to freak her out. But um, she literally was the only thing missing from my life, you know, all those years. And um, she uh, apparently she got really upset um, that my adoptive parents divorced when I was a year old because she was told that I would have a better life with two parents and all of this stuff. And at her funeral, her best friend told me, you know, it, it literally destroyed her to know that you were raised in a single parent household when that was the whole reason that she gave you up because she was a single parent and she didn't feel like she could take care of you. She wanted you to have two parents and you were raised how you were raised in the situation you were raised in. And my birth mother just couldn't have a relationship with me after that. And I know that it tore her up, you know? And, um, so finding her was, um, a healing process for me. It was a very hurtful process for me to have to accept the fact that, you know, when I met her when I was 21 and she died when I was 40 or something like that around that, um, that's an almost 20 year gap that there's nothing. I mean, I would hope for the mail that she would send me a letter or I would hope for a phone call or, you know, whatever the case may be. But that's what happened with my birth mother. Um, it wasn't, I am happy that I found her and I met her one time, which is way more than a lot of adoptees will ever get. So I'm Mm -hmm. very grateful. I'm very grateful for that. Um, but, um, it was very painful. Um, I ended up finding out who my birth father was at her funeral and I drove to his doorstep um, unannounced. <laughs> he was, he was three hours out of the way from Kentucky. I was in Iowa and I was coming home to Kentucky. And so I drove to his door and, um, that was a surreal experience. I mean, he's in the middle of the country and he's a gamer and a hunter and he has wild dogs that live off the land and all of this stuff. Um, and I still wanted to see his face so bad that I drove to his door and introduced myself and he invited me in. He said, come in now. Who's your mother? That's what exactly what he said. Who's your mother? And I told him who she was, and he he acknowledged that he remembered her. And um, I visited him for maybe one hour. I got I took his picture. He acknowledged, you know, um, having relations with my birth mother, and we exchanged information. And um, after that, um, a relationship with him is just fizzled. He is my birth mother was an alcoholic, and he is a raging alcoholic, and so. When I found out that he was an alcoholic, I knew she was, but when I found out that he was a raging alcoholic and I had, you know, 27 years of drinking alcohol, um, it literally like rocked me to my core. I'm like, oh my God, I just emotionally and mentally started to freak out because I'm like, I picked this alcohol thing up and they Mm -hmm. didn't even raise me. They didn't even raise me. And I have it. Like I have this thing with this alcohol that... You know, I didn't want to die like them. I don't want to be like them in that way. And so when I found him and um, found out more about him and whatnot, it was wonderful to have the answers. It was wonderful to see the face. Um, And I looked at his picture. I mean, I have it on my bedroom wall right now, and he doesn't want anything to do with me. I mean, I still have his picture because it's so surreal to finally see somebody that you look like. Um, but when I found out about him being an alcoholic, that's when, um, I decided that I was going to start a recovery, uh, program and, um, really work through the 12 steps and all of that and, um, work on myself and get to 
the root of all these issues that I have with this adoption thing, um, which was highlighted over any other issues that I've ever had in my life. This adoption thing has been far more painful for me than anything has. And, uh, so finding them was answers to the truth. And in order to heal and move forward, we have to know the truth. If we don't have the truth, what are we healing from? Absolutely. Like question marks, you know, question marks hanging over our head. It's impossible for us to heal without the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And I found out I was conceived out of an affair with a married man. My birth father was married when I was conceived. Oh, wow. My birth, yeah, my birth mother never told him anything about it, nothing about the pregnancy. She signed me away for adoption and he didn't know anything about it. Nothing. He said, if I would have known about you, I would have kept you. But your mother didn't tell me anything about you. And I said, well, I mean, I can't do anything about that now. Oh, neither can he. So, um, you know, just finding the truth out is not always it's not easy to find it out. A lot of the times, I mean, like they, I've heard people say and I say it, too, is like adoption isn't usually doesn't usually happen over a pretty story. Like, you know, it's usually something uncovered when you go to search that isn't always pleasant, but I mean, I found like, like deep family secrets that are things that are supposed to be hidden away forever about my biological family that was like, wow, I can't believe that happened, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) stuff like that. But every little piece of information, good or bad, it doesn't even matter. It doesn't even matter, um, is part of who we are. So even though my birth parents are alcoholics, they're still my birth parents. I still, I still love them. Like they don't have to have one, anything to do with me. They can refuse a relationship with me, but I don't care if they were, you know, drug addicts or prostitutes or anything. Like I still love them. I still have a heart for them. And, um, as far as searching goes, I, I mean, I know adoptees that are petrified and terrified to search because they'll end up with stories like mine and they just feel like they can't, they can't take a chance of being rejected. And I mean, I was essentially, I met both my birth parents, but I was rejected by them as soon as I met, I mean, right after I met them. So, you know, accepting that and, um, acknowledging that being the truth is a really, really hard thing to do. I mean, it's really hard. And so I, I recommend every adoptee to find their truth. But at the same time, I'm not in their mind and their situation to know whether they can handle it or not. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's, it's tough. It is tough. And then when we're automatically put in these dynamic situations where, you know, we can't necessarily talk about all the feelings that are associated with reunions or finding our birth parents, let alone being rejected with our adoptive family. And if you Mm -hmm. think about our, we're, we're so close with our adoptive family, we would love to be able to share it all with them. But, but just because we were in this situation of being adopted like I can't share it with them so who am I going to share it with you I don't think I really had hardly anybody to share um my reunions with uh over the years except to have a cousin that I was close to that's understood this whole thing and um and that's really about it so it's a very isolating thing I mean I would I would I recommend everybody to find the truth it's so valuable and so important to our overall um happiness and well-being for our future in order to acknowledge it, accept it and move forward, you know? And I know there's, there's a lot of adoptees stuck because I've, I mean, I am using my stuck place as a launching pad for, um, doing something positive with it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's a lot of adoptees that are stuck is what I was saying is because they don't know their truth. (laughs) They're, (laughs) they need to know the truth, you know? So I, I highly recommend everybody to do, um, anything they can do to get the, the truth. How did you deal with rejection just in case anyone else 
has been rejected or that's the biggest fear they have? Uh, well, um, I guess back when my birth mother rejected me, I was still drinking alcohol then. And so I didn't deal with rejection. I wasn't accepting it. I didn't accept it. It was like an open wound deep in my heart that was there. It was just covered with a whole bunch of stuff. And, um, alcohol was my best friend for 27 years of my life. And I am honestly not too sure I ever accepted it until she died. I mean, I just, it was something that, um, while she was alive, I always had that little bit of hope that someday she was going to want me in her life. And so when she died, it's like, it's like, I I mean, I don't have any choice but to accept it now. She's not alive anymore, Mm -hmm. you know, but with my birth father, um, with him rejecting me, the thing about it for me and the thing that I can really say to other adoptees is, is when they know the truth, like my birth father kept saying, I don't know if you're mine. I don't know if you're mine. Well, I went ahead and got DNA testing. I didn't even need his DNA because I was able to trace his his uh, surname into my highest DNA matches and print it off and send it to him and say, hey, there's no reason that your mother's sister showing up as my so-and-so if you're not my father. There's no other common denominator, denominator for that. Um, and he still, after the DNA testing, he said, I don't want anything to do with you. I've gone my whole life without kids. I don't want any more kids. I don't want any kids. Mm -hmm. And so um, even with that, I knew in my heart of hearts that the truth had been presented. Okay. The part that disturbed me so bad with this whole thing is that the truth had not been presented. Once the truth is presented, here's the DNA proof. And you know that I'm your daughter and you still have denied me. It's totally your loss. Like your loss And you're a creepy human being if that's how you're going to be. You know, like, I don't even want somebody like that in my life. You know, so it's been a hard pill to swallow for the simple fact that you, again, spend your whole life fantasizing and dreaming about these people. But um, it's the pain that's associated with that has, like I said, been exactly where my launching pad is for um, anything that I do adoptee related. Um, and, and, and I do for other adoptees. I mean, I can say that I was alone going through all that, but I want to be there for other adoptees going through that stuff too. I mean, I don't think that there's any pain greater in the world that I've ever experienced in my whole life than being rejected by both my birth parents, you know, but I mean, I'm alive. Uh, I made it. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of triggers. There's a lot of triggers out there for us, but, um, other people can do it too. Yeah, other people can do it too, but focusing on the here and now, like every time my mind goes backwards to start obsessing about all these thoughts about anything with my birth parents or rejection or, you know, a lot of adoptees, me included, I have this, um, things that are triggered that send me into like a depression or something like that. Um, I have to kind of pull myself out of that and try to reframe things and focus on now and the future. You know, because my life now is based on my three children who have given me a reason to live and future grandchildren. And I love my career. I love a lot of things in my life. Um, So I just have to go through the process, feel the emotions, acknowledge them. Um, I've had to accept them. Like I'm now at a place of acceptance. My birth father doesn't want anything to do with me. He's going to die a raging alcoholic. And I feel sad for him. But. there's nothing I can do about it. Nothing. And so I've accepted it. I've accepted that. And, um, I'm moving on with my life, 
you know, Mm -hmm. and I just encourage other adoptees, you know, if they're in fear of being rejected, that, you know, you're not alone, you're not alone, and you will make it through this. It's hard, but it makes people so strong. I mean, I think adoptees underestimate themselves, honestly, and I'm one of them that has done that because we don't feel strong. I mean, we just feel so defeated so much with this whole thing. But to experience any of the dynamics that we experience. I mean, I think about you being 12 years old. I mean, 12 years old in um, an orphanage and remembering, remembering your family and stuff like that and moving to a whole nother country. And, oh, my God, like, oh, I just, it just blows me away at how strong adoptees are. I mean, I'm serious. And then you can think about what you're doing with all of that. Like, I mean, I know that people are so proud of you. You know, and being so young, like, mm-hmm. I don't know, we're, we're just resilient. We're resilient and um, we're going to make a way out of this. And it was, I don't know. It was definitely a difficult journey, you know, f- because, well, one of the reasons why it was difficult was actually on the last day that I was leaving Russia to come to U.S. with my new family, I still remember, you know, the fact how I was standing on the footsteps of the orphanage and I had my sister and my cousin and one of their friends on one side and my new family on the other and that that was a very difficult thing to process because even though I had officially said that yes I want to go into this new family and I truly did um, you know I honestly I was looking at this as another chance at, at life because my life there just wasn't uh, panning out the way I had, I guess, envisioned it when I was very, very young. So that was a very difficult thing to do was to be able be able to stand there and essentially tell one side that you are going to be leaving 21 or 20 hours across the world to live with another family. But yet you will still keep in touch with them. So that so that 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 was a process that you know you brought up, brought up a lot of good points. One of those was um, questioning yourself, uh, trying to understand like why you, why did you have the experience that you did? And I, I've definitely had that um, during my first couple of years here. You know, I I would try and understand piece th- certain things together, and some things just weren't aligning. And the question that I would always come to is why me? Why was it that I had to go through that experience? But I do think that, you know, it's all a process. And I think once you go through that process, it start to ma- it makes a lot more sense. You do start to understand that it was you for X, Y, and Z. It was you that had to go through certain experiences in order to build what you're doing right now. Exactly. Exactly. And I, what I say now and the conclusion that I've come to is no matter how painful this rejection thing has been or how painful the adoptive home I lived in was, if I didn't experience any of that, I wouldn't do anything with adoptee related stuff right now. Nothing. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have any reason to. And I feel like everything that we go through in life, no matter whether it's adoption or anything, like whatever people's passions are in life, come from the biggest hurt of their life. Yeah. You know, like that's that's where your passion for this thing comes in at. So every day now I'm trying to remind myself of, you know, yes, that happened. You're going to acknowledge it again today that it happened. And this is how it made you feel. But Mm -hmm. this is what you're doing now. And, you know, like you said, it's all a process. It's all a process. And I think. 
I've been talking and writing and doing all that stuff for almost six years now in basically the adoptee community online. And, um, you know, that's been a whole healing process in itself. That's something that I would actually highly recommend to anyone is because, you know, when I first started talking about all of this when I was 15 or 16, one of the reasons why I think I didn't take that step forward and try and create something like this back then was because you have to get comfortable with your story first. Exactly. You, you have to understand why, not even why certain things happen, but more so, well, yes, why certain things happen so you can heal. So I love what you're doing with your writing. And the question I had for you was, how has that changed you personally and professionally? Because, you know, I'm a huge advocate of telling your story. I, I think right. that's one of the first fundamental steps that you have to do. You have to be able to sit down and go back as far as possible and try and piece certain things together. Why certain things happened in, in order to understand who you are today. So with what you're doing and you're writing, it is a form of therapy at the end of the day. Um, and I think we kind of as a society skip that part. We think that, oh, it's just another person blogging. Like blogging essentially is the category, the quote unquote overarching category for all this. But really it's therapy, no matter what form of writing you do. Right. Do is this I, is that something that you would recommend for others? Oh my gosh, yes. I recommend it to every adoptee I come across is to write. I mean, I have tons of adoptees I've recommended and a lot of them have started their own blogs and it has actually um, you know, 6 years ago when I um was able to pinpoint that abandonment and rejection from my adoption experience were root issues that I was struggling with and the reasons why I was drinking because I couldn't process this pain in real life. Like I just couldn't process it. I had no materials. I had no hope. I had no anything to help me work on it. There's no resources for us anywhere. Mm -hmm. And one of the first, um, things that I started doing was tweeting about it and then using hashtag adoptee. And then I was like, Oh my God, there's other adoptees on here. <laughs> and, um, then I started seeing other adoptees blog and I'm like, Oh my God, I'm going to start my own blog. And of course, um, this was like 2011, I think. And it was honestly the first time in my whole life that I could share my feelings about being adopted and nobody interrupt me or try to silence me or shut me down. It was like, I have a page and I'm literally in control of everything that I put here and whatever I write on here, nobody can stop me and tell me to shut up. They can't silence me with scriptures or, um, you know, statements like you're, aren't you just thankful you weren't aborted? And you know, mm -hmm. all the things that when we start to share our feelings that people will shut us down. And so it was so empowering for me to be able to write. And I'm not going to lie at the beginning. I was very, very angry. I mean, I was rage filled about this thing. Like I was so angry at my birth mother in 2011. She, you know, died not long after that, but I, I just had so much deep rooted anger and, um, rage and pain from this whole experience that when I was writing, I could feel it in my writing that I was angry. I mean, I'm pretty sure I was cussing in some of them too, you know, like that's how angry I was. And I ended up coming to a place where I talked to some people and I got some wisdom from some friends of mine that, um, said, you know, we love you, but you have to remember that if you want people to receive your message, 
you're going to have to reframe it away where they want to listen to it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And if you're going to come off angry and rage filled, people are immediately going to walk away. I mean, we love you and you share it however you want. And I'm like, okay, you do have a point. And I appreciate it. I was probably mad at him, but I did appreciate that advice. And so from that time forward was like maybe 2012, I would pray every single day for grace. And I'm not a religious person, but I'm a spiritual person. I believe in God and Jesus and the Bible. I would pray every day for grace. Like, Lord, if you, if I, you, if I've gone through all this stuff in life, I want you to use me, but I know that I need grace. I know I need grace. I'm angry. I'm hurt. And so literally, you know, every day I pay, pray for grace. Now I have, I have much more grace than I did. Um, and so my writings, as I've come through it, um, like over the years, you can see now that I'm at a much more graceful place with it where I can articulate my feelings. I think, and you can maybe relate to this, but all the thoughts that we go through in our mind our whole lives, sometimes it's really hard to put how we feel into words Yes, because we've never been able to talk about it. So Mm -hmm. how do you write about something that's never come out of your mouth? And for me, it was easier to write about it than to verbalize it because I've never, never been in a place where I could verbalize it. Like nobody's saying, Hey, how's it feel to be adopted today? You know, like, like, Oh, how was that? How's that feel for you? Nobody says that. And so, um, the writing has been, literally the biggest therapy thing that I recommend to every adoptee. And um, it's been very therapeutic, very therapeutic. I think one of the reasons why um, you bring up a good point, once again, is, you know, I think the reason why we don't um, talk about it as much or have a hard time um, putting it in words is because, well, A, we don't get asked those questions. You know, whenever you are, I've actually, I don't think, I've been ever asked that question besides people who know me. You know, for example, if you go to a networking event or your job, the first question is not going to be, how is your day knowing that you're adopted? Right. You know, right, it's right, how right. are you? It's very relatable to the job or to whatever the society, I think, can understand. And I think that's what it falls to is that what society can understand, that's the questions you'll get asked. But if they can't understand the subject, then those just get swept under the rug. Right. Right. Exactly. And we, we all know pretty much how society views adoption. I mean, they, they don't have any idea about the dynamics of what we go through. And that's a whole nother process I had to go through And the Bible verse that I was reminded of. And I say it all the time is forgive them father for they know not what they do because they, people do not really, I mean, I was angry at people for not getting it. I'm like, you seriously, make a living off of separating mothers and babies. Like I just can't even fathom people that can sleep at night doing that. That's just one example. But I mean, I was just mad at people for not understanding it. And then I had to realize, I mean, we live in a society that glorifies adoption, Mm -hmm. you know? And so adoption being my biggest pain and my biggest heartbreak and my biggest, you know, just heartache in life is celebrated by the world. And so it makes it even more traumatic. I feel like anyway, when, you know, there aren't resources and stuff like that out there for us. Do you think there will always be a form of adoption? Um, I don't know. I mean, I hope not. <laughs> Honestly, in my heart of hearts, I hope not. I mean, I feel like adoption is a word that symbolizes so many different things with changing names and um, identities and hiding secrecy and lies. I don't think that that, I mean, I hope not. No, I don't. I, I mean, we have to hope somewhere and I hope mm-hmm. not. 
I'm not saying that kids aren't going to have to be removed from homes for abusive situations or, you know, heaven forbid, a mother die in labor and the baby be put up for adoption. I'm not saying there's not things that happen that, that children have to be adopted, but there shouldn't be, it should be some kind of guardianship. It should be a guardianship, hopefully to the family, somebody in the family. I mean, I honestly, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how it's going to end, but there's so many advocates out there and people that are working on the front lines with the laws changing and everything else. The, you know, the part that I am 100% against is, you know, the legalized lies, the secrecy, the closed records, um, Mm -hmm. closed adoptions, even, even open adoptions are very, 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 very difficult, um, for adoptees. So, I mean, there might always be a need, but I hope not. I mean, honestly, I hope it all changes. I hope it all shifts. I've always wondered that because, you know, in in the United States, there's foster care. And when I first came to U.S. and I heard about the system, um, one of the first reactions I had was, you know, it's it's temporary. It's essentially like temporary housing. But there's really, like you said, there's no perfect solution because, yes, you could say that adopting a kid is great because you get to help them. Um, by taking them away from abusive household or whatever else it might be. But at the same time, what if that kid is 15 or 16 years old and their personality has already completely formed? And there you are putting him in a position where he may have to accept a complete new set of parents, complete new set of um, cultural norms, and you just never know if that's going to work out or not. Right. Um, one of the other things that I wanted to touch on was your book, your book writing experience. Tell us a little bit about what that's been like. Um, how difficult is it to go back in time and recall some of the things and write about it? Um, well, I started working on a memoir um, a few years ago, and it ha- it seems like... Um, Every time I turn around, something new happens. It's like with the adoption stuff, like it's, you know, I ended up finding out I had a brother. I'm in the middle of writing this memoir. I mean, well, at the beginning of it, actually. um, And I find out I have this brother and, um, you know, I, I, I was waiting for some happy ending for this memoir. I don't I don't know why I was trying to have a happy ending. And I'm like, I've really had a hard time figuring out what my happy ending is going to be. And. Um, not all books have a happy ending. And Mm -hmm. so it's just like, I'm so all over the place with it. And it's really on my heart to do it. And I have started it. Um, but it's just, again, really hard to articulate all the dynamics of how to start it and how to frame it and, um, all of that. And for me, I've actually kind of put it on hold while I'm doing all these other things, um, Mm -hmm. that have really taken up all my time. But, um, I don't know. It's in it's in the future for me. Hopefully, is there an end point that you're trying to hit with it? As far as you know, like for example, um, ending it with you coming in contact with your dad or your mom, or thin, or is it just kind of a continuation until literally today? Well, I mean, I wanted to have it have a message of hope. Like, I want to if I'm gonna. Sp- spend all this time writing this book. I mean, I've gone through the ringer with this thing, like thousands of other adoptees, but I'm alive. I'm moving forward and I made it just like we did, you know, but Mm -hmm. I want to, I want to have a message of hope in there. And I just feel like almost like 
I'm not quite there yet, I guess, in my own personal life. I do have different things that I can use as a message of hope, but I feel like I'm being used in some other ways right now that has my attention um, instead of really focusing on that right now, I guess. I am looking for some kind of, I just haven't quite figured it out yet. I mean, I've had a lot of um, really hard, difficult things happen over the last year. My adopted mother passed away and um, the brother that I had found through DNA uh, got killed on a motorcycle wreck. And after bonding with him for five years, I find out he's not even my brother through DNA testing. And so Mm. that was all just very traumatic for me and nobody that's not adopted would even understand. I'm, you know, bonding with someone that I'm told is my brother and then a DNA test says he's not. And so it's like, he was my happy ending. He was, he was what I was going to put in the end of my memoir. And then I found out he's not my brother. And then six months later we decide, I mean, we decided we're going to, we're going to have a relationship anyway, because we didn't meet to build a relationship for five years and never talk to each other again. Mm-hmm. And I wrap my mind around, okay, well, I'm going to embrace him as my brother still, even though through DNA he's not. And I thought I had been to a Thanksgiving dinner for the first time in my life with biological family in Texas um, two years ago, only to find out that I'm really sitting at a table with a bunch of strangers. And it was just really devastating for me to experience that. And then um, just about six months ago, he was killed on a, a motorcycle in a motorcycle accident. And so... Um, all of those things happening in the last year, it's like, um, I just, just need time haven't been to able heal. To, yeah. I haven't been able to find that happy ending with this thing. Yeah. I mean, I just, I just am not there yet, but I will be there eventually. Hopefully. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about your work, the two blogs that blogs that you had mentioned and kind of the purpose of each one. Yeah. So, um, my blog is adoptingrecovery.com and that's the one that I've had around for about five years. And that's where I journey or I uh, write about my personal journey, which is being an adoptee in recovery. Um, so August 12th, 2012, um, is when I started recovery. So I have five years sobriety, um, starting, um, in 2012. So that's where I have all that journey at. Um, I recently started, um, what's called adoptees connect. Um, and I have come to this place in my life where um, all these things are happening. Um, Just this year, I got to meet my biological grandmother for the first time. And how that happened um, without my birth father's blessing is I jumped in the car and I drove across the country and showed up at the nursing home she was at and I met her. Um, I'm an adult. I don't need permission from anyone. And so that experience for me, meeting her was a very overwhelming experience. Um, It was a dream come true, but I was not prepared for all the emotions that would come after that. And so just a few months ago, I was in a really pretty dark depression that had set in after I came back from meeting her because I knew I was never going to probably get to see her again. And, um, I was in a place where I need, I felt like I needed therapy. And so I just became discouraged in the fact of, um, having to therapy the therapist again. Like Mm. I've been in therapy my whole life (laughs) and I have to sit in the therapy office and go through all these things. But then I have to explain to the therapist (laughs) about, about abandonment, about complicated, um, grief, about disenfranchised grief, about all these dynamics of stuff that we deal with. And it's like, I can't mentally do this again. Like I just can't. And so it's like a never ending cycle. It is. And so I was in the middle of this dark depression is when I decided that, um, I was going to create adoptees connect and this is going to be a, 
um, all adoptee centric support group for adult adoptees. Um, and I started it in my city and our first meeting is Saturday. Um, but I put a post on my Facebook about it and I said, Hey, I think we should have one of these in every city and every state. I just think, I think every single adoptee everywhere needs their safe space to go connect with other adoptees at. And, Mm -hmm. um, I do not personally feel that the groups with the birth mothers and the adopted mothers are safe for us. Like they're not safe for us to share our hearts and our feelings. And, um, my heart and my passion has always been for the adoptees. So I feel like we need our own safe space. So in that being created adoptees connect, um, in Lexington, Kentucky, I had a friend and fellow adoptee, Kevin Engel, who is actually in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and he is actually starting his own group in Lancaster. And I've had probably three different um, adoptees besides him that have said, hey, I want to start one in my city. I want to start one in my city. And um, I don't know. I have a hope that this thing will spread like wildfire. And um, adopteesconnect.com is basically um, the main website to Adoptees Connect. And I think that um, it would be really awesome if we had one in every city and every state. And, you know, the only qualifications we need to be able to start our own support group is being an adoptee ourselves. I mm-hmm. mean, there's so many there's so many doubts and so many fears in starting something like this. I've tried to start a support group for adult adoptees literally for six years. I was looking for one in 2011 when I was in that really breaking point of my life. And there was nothing. There's literally nothing out there. And so it's a long time coming. And um, I would encourage any other adoptees that might be listening to this to um, really think about starting their own support group in their community. And um, I like the adoptee online community. I love the adoptee online community. But it's so much different than connecting. It's a different dynamic in person. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's so much different than connecting in real life. And, um, you know, that's what I'm looking for is for the connections in real life with adoptees that can support one another in the good times and the bad and all of that stuff. So that's how adoptees connect was, was, um, basically brought into action. And then the other project that I've been working on is adoptee merch. And I know that, um, it's some people have seen it online already or whatever. It just launched, um, new year's Eve, I believe. And that is basically, um, a vision that I had about putting adoptee voices on branded branded merchandise, um, in order to raise our voices to another level in our communities. Um, Mm. it's, it's kind of been brought to my attention that the online adoptee community is the online adoptee community, but then in real life in our real life communities, um, for me anyway, and I know a lot of other adoptees feel the same way, um, there's not much conversation going on. Mm -hmm. And so with wearing adoptee um, um, statements and stuff on merchandise and clothes, uh, the hope is that it will spark conversations more than ever before. And so we can um, really start to take advocating for adoptee rights and adoptee everything, basically, to a whole nother level in our own communities, even, you know, in the shopping uh, lines at the grocery store or, you know, different places that we might go. And one of the best parts about that is, is I'm looking for my fellow adoptees to get involved by suggesting different things that they would like to participate in um, being put on different merchandise. So there's all kinds of details about that on the website. And then um, the other awesome part is that um, 
the proceeds from that, I'm taking a portion of them and buying DNA kits. Mm. And I'm going to be um, basically blessing adoptees with DNA kits um, who can't afford them otherwise. And so that's called the DNA Kit Commit Program. And all of it is on the website. The whole vision for the whole thing is on the website. It's really just the beginning. But um, I've had a lot, a lot, a lot of positive positive feedback. Um, There's always going to be critics with certain things. That's everything in life. And so I expected... I expected there was going to be some critics, and that's totally fine. I totally love them anyway. (laughs) I love them anyway. But, um, you know, it's these visions that I've had that it's so easy for us to have different visions and ideas, and we just sit on them. And next thing you know, five or ten years has passed by, you know. And and the thing for 2018 that I have done is, is this has been one of the hardest seasons of my life. And I have just really been determined to take the pain and do something positive with it and really pour into the adoptee community and do something just totally different that's not been done. And if if that's the birth of some support groups all over the United States, even if it's two or three, I mean, I don't know how many it's going to be. I, I hope and pray it's going to it's going to grow. I mean, over the years, let's just hope and pray this thing is going to grow. And, um, you know, the same thing for adoptee merch. It's just going to, you know, keep keep putting adoptee statements and adoptee ideas and, you know, our experiences out there so that people can start to see there's so much more to adoption than what the world is really portraying that there is. I love what you're doing because we're actually doing somewhat similar things. So one of those is the merchandise. Um, I've always believed that having something like that not only will um, raise awareness for this, but also help people heal. So when you can, you know, when you can read the statement on the back or the front of the shirt that says something related to the person's life or some sort of connection, then you can start to ask some questions and you never know the right. type of question you may get asked. You know, there are some people that will ask you something that you may never have thought before. So just giving others a chance to somewhat understand who you are, yes. but then also allow you to heal through that understanding on your own. And then the, exactly. the second part with the groups, I once again, I love that concept. We're actually, we'll be having an event in June, June 23rd here in Austin. And the event is called Hear Me Now. And the whole theme of the event is to allow people to understand their stories. So, you know, the, the brief um, teaser for it, I guess, is that we'll have people who have obviously have been adopted, have gone through the process sharing their experience of how they discovered their story so that others can go through it, essentially use the framework, and then go through their own story on their own. Wow, that sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. So I, I, lo- yeah, I love what you're doing. And I, th- I definitely think that, you know, you said um, that it took you so long to develop this. But at the end of the day, I think you're the perfect person to do that and one of the reasons, this is my understanding, why some of these th- things haven't been done is because, you know, you haven't done it. And that's it, that there is a reason why I think certain things haven't been done in the past five or 10 years, because I think it takes certain experiences from certain people. Right. That's so, good. That's mm-hmm. That's good. That's really good. Mm-hmm. Well, and we, we live in a society where sometimes we can be our own oppressors. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. Like, like there's critics out there that feel a certain way. And 
it's almost like there are certain people in different communities that are part of the reason why we are so oppressed. So, mm-hmm. you know, I have heard from several adoptees already that have all these fascinating ideas in their mind, but they're in fear of the backlash from the adoptee community. And mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, listen, if you have an idea and a vision, it is, you can't let it go to waste. Like the fear, the fear that we, that, that is associated with so many different areas of being an adoptee is just so overwhelming, but we have to really network with other people that are experiencing the same thing we are. And, and I just say, step out of the boat in faith, mm-hmm. you know, out of the fear and step out in faith that you have something and you want to do something with it. And sometimes things cost money, you know? I mean, there's no advocacy group anywhere that never spends any money on anything, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, in order to grow and move forward, um, we have to have different ideas. And I think that's part of the reason why things are so, um, I don't know, just not blossoming and blooming like they should be in some areas of the adoptee community is because um, there's a lot of division. There's a lot of division there from... um, a lot of different views and everything. And I respect everybody's views, but at the same time, I'm just in a position where I'm going to step out of the boat and I realize I might look around and there's nobody with me, (laughs) but I'm going to do it anyway. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I just happen to have, you know, an overwhelmingly large community of fellow adoptees that I've been riding this thing out with for years, you know, some of them six, seven years. Um, and I love them and they love me. And so I do have a lot of support and, but I just want to push any other adoptees that have any ideas, you know, to bring different levels of, um, you know, connection to the adoptee community or even the adoption. I say adoptee because that's my main network. Mm -hmm. Um, but even the adoption community, um, I encourage them to use their gifts, you know, and step out of the boat in faith and just try to let go of the fear. I think another important thing within all this to understand is that, you know, your vision may not work out exactly as you had planned it before it started. And I don't think it ever does, actually. I think right. there are always pivots that you have to make down the road. Just like you said, you know, at first you may get um, one person joining the group, but then the year after it may turn into 100. So you just right. you just never know. And I think what's important is to just keep doing it every single day, Yes. try and improve it, you know, slightly. Improve your process, improve how you communicate with people, and then really just, you know, narrow down on the problem. You bring, you said um, the fact that how, you know, now is the time to really almost like take a step back and just do the work. Do the work right. and do the work. And I think I've always kind of thought about it the same way is that, you know, even with the podcast, the purpose of it is not to become, you know, the the highest played podcast in the world. The purpose of the podcast is to provide value for other people. So whether that's being 10 or 100 or one, if the value is provided, then that's, you know, goal accomplished. It's not to be viewed by millions and millions of people. And I, I think that's a huge thing for people to understand. And I think a lot of that truly does come from ego. And that's right. kind of the way our society is set up, set up is that, you know, right. we want the next brightest thing. We want things that are expensive and we want more, more and more possessions. But I think once you take a step back from that, your life actually becomes a lot easier because then you can focus on the things that you need to. Right. I couldn't agree with you more, honestly. Um, one, great. Of, one of the uh, final points that I want to ask you is, when odds are completely against you, what are some core fundamental principles that you refer to? 
Uh, I would say for me, um, understanding that my response a lot of the time is based on um, some deep-rooted issues that might not have been dealt with yet. Um, and so really allow myself space and time away from everything to, um, just really recollect my thoughts and to process things. Um, I think a lot of adoptees, I know I can speak for myself, my responses to things, um, especially when there's crisis situations going on or things that aren't comfortable is very heightened. And I have to take myself out of the situation and really regroup and, and not respond yet before anyone else. And so I think being patient with myself and taking time is one of the main ones. And um, I think the other one I would say would be connecting with other adoptees. I mean, it's literally been life-saving for me. I mean, the first time I ever even read something another adoptee wrote, um, I was just blown away. I mean, it is literally every single time uh, I created the how does it feel to be adopted page on Facebook and ask an adoptee. And I, you can imagine how much I read from other adoptees. I mean, mm -hmm. everything that I've read has been so validating. And, you know, that's why I desire for all of us to have that real life connection so that we can have real life friends that are adoptees and why it's so important. I mean, it's so connecting with other adoptees definitely, and really just being easy on, on myself and yourself and, you know, taking things one step at a time when we have to go process all these different areas. Mm -hmm. Do you remember your first time that you had connected with someone in person and an adoptee in particular? <clears throat> um, in real life, um, actually, there was a young lady named Maria Gatz that I used to go to church with, and I didn't even know she was an adoptee, and I actually filmed her baptism. And um, people in the church told her about me, and people in the church told me about her, but we had not had the chance to meet. And so I just randomly, how, I don't know how, but <laughs> I end up filming her baptism. And after her baptism, I went up to her and I was like, oh my gosh, congratulations. I said, I filmed this, so I really want to share it with you. On And so she gave me her Facebook name and I gave her my Facebook name. And she saw immediately like all my adoptee stuff on there and she just like lost it she's like oh my god this is the girl that this is the girl everybody's telling me about and i did and, and and who would have known that she's the one that people were telling me about and so we have like this instant connection it's like a bond that it doesn't matter what anybody says or does like i love her she's my baby and i don't know it's different like i just get this immediate charged up um connection to adoptees in real life, I can't even describe it, but it's so exciting. It's so fun. And I, there's other, several other, um, and then I have a friend in Louisville, uh, Stephanie Harris, same thing with her. We've met in real life. Like it's just, it's just a really full heart type of experience when you meet adoptees in real life and you have a connection. It's like, we never run out of things to talk about. Um, and it's just awesome. I don't know. It's different mm -hmm. than, it's different than online. It's just a whole nother level. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. If this podcast has had any sort of impact on your life, we would love to hear from you. Feel free to share your input by tagging us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Overcoming Odds. Also, if you haven't done so already, feel free to subscribe to our weekly newsletter so you can receive all of our latest content along with featured stand-up and speak-up stories, newest podcast episodes, 
and ways you can be involved with Overcoming Odds. Once again, thank you for listening, and we'll look forward to having you next week.